Welcome back to season two of The Art of Something. In this season, we're going to take a deeper dive into topics such as racism, autism and depression, but also how the individuals experiencing them are navigating them. I've had a wonderful time talking to the guests and I think you will really enjoy the conversations that I've had with them. A note to our listeners, this season was made before the UK government introduced new lockdown measures, so this series was produced in complete compliance with the new guidance. Before we begin, make sure you click subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify and make sure you follow our Instagram page, the art of underscore something. Now, without further ado, let's go. The art of fighting the good fight. In 2020, I've seen Ali gone from strength to strength, speaking in local Black Lives Matter rallies and going on BBC Radio in Norfolk to talk about racism, exploring black culture and highlighting prominent black artists. She's relentless in the pursuit of truth, and it really made me wonder what inspired her to fight the good fight. In this episode, we talk about growing up somewhere else, living in different countries to the rest of our families, why food is so important in the makeup of who we are, and explore why 2020 has seemingly inspired more people to want to fight racial injustice. So sit tight, because this is going to be a good one. Hey, hey Ali. Hello. Um, welcome aboard. Welcome to a new season of The Art of Something. Ali's going to be my first guest today. So before we start, Ali, why don't you talk a little bit about yourself, who you are, and your journey so far? Ah, <laughs> uh, about myself, I'm Ali or Ahmed. I am 22 years old currently, tragically. Um, I'm originally from London, born and raised. I moved to Norwich um, to study. I've currently finished um, but I'm still here. <laughs> and uh, things that I do part-time, I enjoy filmmaking, specifically around documentary. And I have a few shows on the radio occasionally. Yeah, I like to eat cheese. Um, that's pretty much it. Just <laughs> my journey so far. Um, while I'm in Norwich, I eventually will be branching back out to London at some point to go back to my home. I suppose, but yeah, that's that's me in a in a nice suppressed nutshell. It tends to happen to a lot of people from not from Norwich who moves into Norwich to stay here for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I, I've done that. I've been here eight years. What? You just get stuck. Well, not stuck, but like you get distracted. I don't know. You meet a lot of people here, and then you just get into these cycles of friendships and projects, and then suddenly you're just here for a prolonged period of time. It's quite comfy as well. I think it's a little bit cushy. Mm. So that tends, tends to happen. But um, yeah, wow. That's that's a lot for a short time in Norwich. What is radio like? I, I suppose it's kind of similar to what we're doing right now. <laughs> it's fun. I think it's always good to have a medium where you can talk and express yourself. Mm. And it's it's very important to have different means of doing that. Um, so I think radio is just great because you get the opportunity to discuss different topics with different people, sort of, again, similar to this. Yeah. Um, but you get to do it over a, a shorter turnaround. Mm -hmm. So I guess you cover lots of different things in a small space of time, which is always fun. What, uh, what led to your involvement in radio? Well, um, I so I did my documentary, um, More Than Black, and... I posted a trailer for it on my Instagram. Mm. And then by doing so, I got someone reached out to me um, from the BBC radio and said that one of the producers wanted to talk to me about um, just the whole concept of like the black community and the current climate and things like that. 
Um, so I actually got interviewed in the morning around the BLM movement in Norwich. Mm. And then because my, my documentary is focused around like the black experience, around colorism, around um, being a black creative in a white industry. So it was quite right in terms of tone. Uh, so we had a chat about that. And then in the evening, I had an interview around my documentary, that process, inspiration and things around that. And then following that, they were just like, hey, we like how you sound, what you're doing. Do you want to hop on a few different things? Is there anything else that you want to talk about? I will give you the place to talk about it. And I was like, cool. <laughs> yeah, so that's pretty cool. You went from, I suppose, filmmaking to being a audio person on air. <laughs> the whole spectrum of, you know, traditional media. Mm. That's pretty cool. Um, speaking of BLM, with everything that's happened over the last couple of months, all the unfortunate events mm. in America, we've had, I suppose, for the for eight years I've lived here, the first time in Norwich that we've had a, I suppose, a rally, a protest against, on the topic of race. Mm. Um, and on the very first one that we did, in, I remember seeing you, on the platform sharing about your experiences mm. what what was it like for yourself to be able to speak out in a in i suppose in a setting where speaking out is not people are not very used to speaking out i think it was really interesting because i remember that day like very clearly i mm. was very very depressed and hurt and i felt really alone i think with living in norwich you notice that there's a massive culture a lack of culture um in terms of diversity and it felt very hard to experience grief you could put it to experience grief and not have anyone who looks like you to to be able to support you through that so i remember just being in my room and obviously we'd been working from home for a long period of yeah. time at that point we're still in in the um cusp of lockdown lockdown mm. and i remember hearing about this rally and all this protest and i felt like okay well I'm, I don't know if I'm going to go. And I ended up deciding very last minute. So the protests already started to go. I remember literally walking up to this massive crowd of people. And as soon as I entered the crowd, I just felt so better. It was weird because one, I never in my life, I still say I love with my friends about it. Like I've never seen that many black people in Norwich in one space ever. Yeah. Like I'd never, I didn't even know there were that many black people yeah. in Norwich, first of all. Um, so that was extremely comforting to see. And it was interesting as well, like the, the emotive energy that was around was so reflective of my own. So I actually felt really comforted by it. And it was enough to inspire me to talk because one, I saw a lot of people sharing stories that I could relate to. And I saw even friends that I knew or know, sorry, um, speak up as well. And it just, I felt this like burning desire to say something because I I felt like I was already a part of the conversation and I felt safe enough to share. Mm. Um, so I did. And even after that, it's just the comfort, the, the in embrace that I experienced from different people within the black community was just phenomenal. And I really, really was so grateful that I, I even went because I think it really helped me in a difficult time and I don't think anything else would have helped me through that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was definitely, I think it was the top two times I've seen that amount of black people 
gather in one place in Norfolk. The first, the first was probably Black Panther when it premiered. Um, <laughs> but that was another, another um, event that made me realize actually we are, Norfolk has, um, or Norwich anyway, has a very big minority presence that is often not seen or heard. And I think for me, it was, it, it was, I don't know, it was sad that it took something like that to see, mm. to for us to see how vibrant the city is. Um, but definitely, like um, since then, I've seen a lot more, and hopefully this is a consistent, persistent, and a long-lasting um, after effect of what's transpired over the last few months. But definitely, I've seen more. Um, it's more visible. Mm. Um, the the display of diversity has definitely been more visible. And um, for me, that's for someone who's lived here for eight years, I think it's, it's a very positive change. And hopefully it is sustained and we see that going further into um, the legacy that is Norwich. Um, let's talk a little bit about, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But um, I see you very often commuting between um, London obviously Norwich and is it Switzerland yeah yeah is that where your family are yeah so um my parents live in Switzerland and my younger brother my little sister actually recently moved um back to London like after four or five years of living in Switzerland um because she wanted to go to college here mm. so it's it's weird I saw her the other day and I was just like that's that's so weird that you're here. Like yeah. she tried to hug me. I was like, give me a minute. Like this is weird. <laughs> I only see you around Christmas since yeah. occasional um, birthday situations. Um, but yeah, I think though I would consider across those three locations, my home mm -hmm. sort of spread out between London, Norwich and yeah. Switzerland. And there are definitely elements of family, familiarity and comfort. Um, so yeah, I bounce between the three quite a lot. Yeah. What, 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 what is that like? Um, did, so just sort of like paint a picture for myself and for the people listening. Mm. Did, did you grow up in Switzerland or was it in London and then your parents moved to Switzerland? What, 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 what was it? How did it come about to the current state of affairs? So I, I grew up in London. I've, yeah. I've never like resided in Switzerland. Right. Um, so I grew up in London. I was raised in London. Um, I moved to Peterborough for a small spell, like two or three years, but yeah. we, don't, we don't talk about that. <laughs> okay. um, I, I firmly blocked that one out of my memory. Yeah. Um, and then straight after that, I moved to uh, Norwich for university. Um, so my parents moved around, I'm going to say like 2015, 2016. Okay. I don't have the best memory, but around that time. So mm. it hasn't been like a super long time, but it's also been a good few years. Um, so they moved with my younger sister, my younger brother. So mm. I have three older sisters, um, but they reside in London. Mm -hmm. um, so when I go back to London, I see my, my, see my sisters. Mm -hmm. And then when I go to Switzerland, I see my parents and I see my younger siblings. Yeah. Um, and then we try and meet up around Christmas times. Um, if we can all get into one roof. It's been hard, I think, over the last couple of years. Yeah if you know anyone who has family that live in another country, it's just like, it's hard to navigate. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to get everyone together or trying to definitely. find the time to fly or go somewhere else. So it's definitely been difficult, but the last two years, we've managed, mm, two years? Mm, 
I think in the last two years we managed to spend Christmas together. But I've had I've had to spend Christmas by myself um, or like outside of my family, yeah. um, which as a kid I never thought I'd ever have to do. Yep. You know, we Tell have this perception it. of Christmas where it's very orientated around this concept of family yeah. and like togetherness. And if you've ever had to spend Christmas like outside of your family, it's so weird. You gain this weird perception of independence and you realize that you actually can survive on your own. Like when you make your own Christmas like yeah. dinner, it's very sad, but also doable because you've yeah. done it. Yeah. Um, I have no idea what I was talking about, but yeah, <laughs> um, it's, it's definitely interesting the split of going to the different locations but mm. we seem to we seem to be managing okay we've had family holidays together as well yeah. so we're trying to make sure we we find time to see each other in all the craziness mm. yeah it's it's kind of the same for me um my family um not my not my core family but my extended family we're all quite close mm. we're split between um canada hong kong and i'm here alone mm. um and like the Christmas, I haven't been at home for Christmas for the last seven years now. Man. Yeah. And it's, but thankfully I've got loads of good friends here. Um, friends as family have taken me in or, um, you know, last, last year, uh, my friends went to see their family. So they left, mm. they've got a really nice flat in London. No, not in London, sorry, in Norwich. And yeah. what we, what they did was they let us house it. So mm. we had like a really, like kind of like a holiday house, a Becky and I, mm. um, and it was right in the city. So it worked well, um, as I have to work over Christmas mm. um, with the lack of transportation that worked well. But yeah, like um, it's such a unique experience. I think people, once you've spent Christmas to a- alone or without family, mm. um, it makes you realize a lot or learn a lot more about yourself. Mm. Um, and it makes those times where you get to spend together with the family a lot more special, I think, um, especially when you have to travel for it. Yeah. That when they're not in the same country, I think, yeah, I think there are times when I've seen people take it for granted where, mm. you know, the family is just an hour or two away um, and the stress of air travel is, you know, beyond their wildest imagination. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely, like, um, I definitely relate to that a lot. Mm. I think the last time we managed to get everyone together was my cousin's wedding in Toronto, I want to say a year and a bit ago. Mm. And even then, it wasn't everyone together. Yeah, so... Um, it's so, so difficult. Yeah. Like, I even remember... Because the last the last time I'd, so, I'd seen my whole family together was last year, December, by some sort of grace. Like, we managed yeah. to get everyone. And it was, like, the first time in a really long time that we'd all been... Because yeah. I have quite a big family. Like, yep. three older sisters, one younger sister, one brother and That's parents. A it's a big family. Yeah. Um, so, it was like, oh, miracle. And then I was I I went alone in January because it's one of those things like if you haven't seen your family in so long, every time you can get mm. no matter what financial situation yeah. or schedule situation you're in, you try and squeeze as many opportunities as yeah. possible. So then I went alone again to see them in January straight yeah. after Christmas, um, and then we started slipping to lockdown out of nowhere. Um, we were supposed to, my little sister supposed to, was supposed to come to London for her 16th birthday. Obviously that didn't happen. Yeah. That was in April. And then we were supposed to go to um, Switzerland in June for my brother's 10th birthday. That also didn't happen because we were still in lockdown um, and the, there was travel restrictions. So it was so difficult because it was like, 
I, I'm obsessed with my brother. I love him. He's, he's my favorite person in the whole world. Like, I think anyone who knows me knows that of me. And it was so heartbreaking because it was such a monumental age and birthday yeah. for him. And he's one of those people. He's the only boy. He has five older sisters that he's absolutely, he adores. And it was so heartbreaking to have his birthday over a Zoom call. It was just like, yeah. he dressed up for it, bless him. But it was just like, I was trying not to cry. We'd already cried in the morning yeah. over the phone, like on video call. And then I was trying not to cry again later on. And it's just, it was so heartbreaking. And then um, the travel agency kept pushing our flights back. So then they yeah. pushed it back again in July. And they were like, okay, hopefully in on the 1st of July, you'll be able to fly. Like, hopefully that'll be fine. Um, it was hard because my mum, she's, she's a little bit dramatic, not too dramatic, but she, she, she felt not, she was a little, she felt ill essentially. Um, I don't know what in particular it was. I think it's probably had a lot to do with stress of not seeing her children mm. and obviously the uncertainty of like the pandemic and everything like that. And how we were apparently being painted on Switzerland news was very bad as well right. in terms of how bad the We pandemic. as in people in England. Yeah, so yeah. we as in the UK yeah. on Switzerland news was... Yeah we were painted in the same way Italy was painted to us, essentially. Right. So she was very stressed out about that. Um, and my sister actually went to the airport in June because we wasn't told that we weren't allowed to fly. Right. So she got turned away. So there was a lot of trauma around that and upset. Yeah. Oh, and I just remember literally July came around. We were so scared, literally. Up until the moment we were sat on the plane, we were still scared. We didn't want to tell like my mum whether we were on or not because we didn't want to give her the stress of knowing that we weren't going to be able to go. Mm -hmm. So it was literally just before they were about to take off and it, before they obviously give the announcement about phones, we messaged her like, okay, we're on the plane now. You can start driving down. We're at, we're going to be coming okay. basically. Yeah. And oh my God, when we were in the airport and I saw my mum after like that long period of time and that everything, I was crying so much. I yeah. cried like a baby. We were all crying because yeah. I think that's the thing people take for granted is, you know, having your parents like, an hour away, half an hour away or living with your parents or living with your family like it's such a blessing because they are obviously some of the people that you care about most in the world and to have no means or ways of seeing them in person and being mm. able to hug them and express like physical love and um it, it's it's very hard and I think that I was even speaking to one of my friends who unfortunately wasn't even able to even go and see their family and haven't seen their family in a really long time like the toll that takes when you hear someone's like oh i'm just gonna go to my mom's for like dinner or i'm just and it's not even a case of that's a horrible thing to hear but and you know no one means no one's doing it out of a malicious way when they talk about their family but sometimes when that happens and you're in no position to see your family it really does hurt because it's like oh i wish i wish i could do the same thing and it was yeah. so sweet seeing all these people had gone home to like spend lockdown with their family and I was just like yep. in Norwich initially and then my sister came and got me and brought me to London and, and yeah even living with them was like some sort of solace because yep. outside of that I was literally by myself yep. and there's only so much you can do when you are alone like it's not great so yeah I was really grateful that they came and got me but it still was even hard because obviously you still you're not with everyone yeah and there was no way for us to be with everyone. I, I always said, like, I wish, I wish I got on a flight to, to um, Switzerland before we got into the brat of it. Yeah. 
because that would have been I would have rather been there. Yeah. Um, but obviously, I did not. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah. I would say hopefully next time you know what to do, but hopefully there's no oh, next yeah. time. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I remember I came. I went home as well. Um, just before it, it, just as it kicked off in Asia, before it kicked off here, and mm. my. I was due to return as is kicking off here. Mm. Um, and then I got the call from work saying, hey, look, um, it, just as a precaution, we're still going to pay you, but you're going to have to stay at home for 14 days. Mm. And then my, and I told my landlord and my landlord, I'm a living tenant. Mm. And my landlord said, hey, look, um, just as a precaution, we'd rather you don't come back to the house. Okay. Um, and that was, that was the day I was supposed to fly home. Mm. And what was I going to do, right? Stay um, home. Yeah, do I do I stay at home? My yeah. mom said, do you want me to stay at home? But then that also meant that when I came back again, mm. I would still have to stay away for 14 days. So mm. that really wasn't an option. Mm. And then like, I was going to ask my friends if they could take me in, mm-hmm. but time difference meant that they were all asleep. Mm. Uh, and it was like, but then see, my mom is normally the one that panics between the two of us. Mm. And my, seeing my mom not panic and be the calming one in the conversation, I think nearly broke me mm. because it reminded me of how far I, I was from that calming voice. Mm. And I think a lot of people don't understand about you know, guys, people like us who live away from, far away from family oh, is yeah. that we don't have that to fall back on as mm. much as they do. But um, one of the other things, so let's lighten up the moon a little bit. Um, <laughs> one of the other things I tend to fall back on when, especially like when I know I'm stressed, mm. one of the indicators that I um, look at myself when I'm stressed or when I'm not feeling well is food. Oh. When I start craving food from home. Oh, it's the worst thing in the world. Yeah. I'm even worse because I can't even like cook. and, and not, right. Well, I can yeah. cook, but I can't cook traditional Congolese food. Yeah. Not because I don't think I'd be able to do it because I'm quite a decent cook. Yeah. It's just that I've never tried. I don't, I've never written down my mom's recipes. Yeah. I've never asked her because she is so excellent. She's a Congolese yeah. chef. So she's so excellent at making all the traditional meals. Mm. And I don't even want to insult her by trying to replicate. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to be rude, but yeah, that's yeah. the worst. Like just having your, your mum make you a home cooked meal and it's all of the meals that you see as a kid. Like, oh my gosh. Like that was even one thing that made me cry when I was eating. Like my mum's feeling like, yeah. oh my God. Like I didn't even know when I was going to eat this food again. Yeah. Like I couldn't even, I was literally sat in lockdown just making whatever meals, but like, it's so wholesome and heartwarming, the food that your mum makes for you. Um, so yeah, I was, but I take so much comfort in food as well. Yeah. Food is like one of my biggest comforters. Yeah. So to not even have access to that, that was the worst. Well, I suppose like, you know, I am relatively lucky that there is half decent Chinese food around, mm. but like, where are you going to get Congolese food in Norfolk? Nowhere. Yeah. There's, there's nowhere. There's, yeah. there's no restaurant. There's yeah. no takeaway yeah. there's no auntie like there's yeah. no one yeah. that i know it's that's able to make Congolese food in norfolk so yeah. it's it's really it's just it's not possible yeah um with my sisters they they know how to make certain dishes yeah um so but obviously we were in the pandemic so it was even harder as my mom actually just has all those ingredients all the time yeah <laughs> she she makes she would. those of course it's the same would. as having yeah. like pasta or rice in your yeah in your cupboard yeah. she'll have all the necessary ingredients yeah. for those meals um and the necessary re- uh shops to go to as well yeah so yeah it was just oh it's just awful because there's nowhere to eat it i think mm. that's what makes me miss home even more 
because food is my comforter is also um, a signifier or, or a, a reminder of my culture or background. Oh, yeah. And to not have it accessible is just... Uh, it's it's like great. a little top up for me. It's like, yeah. oh, I'm, I've, I've been away from Chinese culture from a little bit, from Hong Kong culture a little mm-hmm. bit. Let me eat this food. Let me mm. top it up. Let me recharge my battery a little bit. It's um, rejuvenating for sure. Yeah. I, I miss, I don't know if you've had this before, but um, one of the things that we make in Hong Kong mm. is called congee. Congee okay. is when you, you know, when you boil rice, you add just enough water mm. to make sure the rice is fur, like a, it's got a good biting point to it. Mm. But then um, if you add loads of water, it sort of become it cooks the rice into kind of like a rice soup, rice porridge, yeah. like kind of like a gruel sort of thing. Yeah. Um, that's my comfort food. That's oh. if I'm craving that, I need. I know I probably need to see a doctor <laughs> because that's when oh Tim is probably not feeling well yeah. or stressed out. Um, do you have something like that, like a specific dish that you sort of like call upon? Uh, it'd have to be my dissel with um, my I'm probably not even pronouncing that great, um, but it's my dissel is like. Ugh. It's kind of like a bean stew in the easiest yeah. way to put it. It's got, there's so much that goes into it and it's a, yeah. a long, relatively long prep time. And Mabumo is she, uh, sheep belly. Yeah. And oh my God, like if you ask my mom, like anytime I'm coming in a house of which she's in, yeah. that's what she'll make yeah. for my arrival. <laughs> nice. Like that is my, that's my arrival food because I am obsessed with it. But I'm also obsessed with fufu as well. Like, especially as a kid, I was very strange. I would just eat that by itself because yeah. I just love the taste of it. It's just like really... What is fufu? Um, fufu is uh, semolina um, and it's just, it's got this um, farina. Is that, it's like a, it's like a, I don't know how to translate a lot of this stuff. It's like a powder almost. Sure. It's like, yeah. a, it's like a flour. I don't know what the flour is made out okay. of. Um, uh, but they mix the semolina with that type of flour and like beat it in hot water. Right. And that's literally it. Yeah. I, I don't even think any salt is added to it, but okay. that obsessed, yeah. obsessed. Like, it's funny because my sisters hate it. Right. Because it's not like the most pretty food you could eat yeah. in Congolese culture. Yeah. Um, but yeah, even when I got back, that was my snack, essentially that. I also like making little rice balls as well. So I just fresh, plain rice. I don't know what it is about the, the way my mum makes rice is weird. It just, I love rice by itself. Oh, Yeah. So I would go in the kitchen yeah. in the pot of rice and get like a spoon of it and squish it into a ball and then go back in the living room and just bite it like an apple. <laughs> I think a lot of people who don't understand Asian or African culture about mm. how big rice is. Rice is everything. Okay. This is more Asian, but um, I don't know if you've seen that Uncle Roger video. Um, it, that spoke to me. Uh, there's oh. a video. Basically, there was um, a, there's this character on YouTube mm. Um, there's a guy, there's a uh, Malaysian um, British comedian called uh, Nigel Ng, mm. and he ha- plays this character called Uncle Roger. Mm. And he um, is like this stereotypical un- uh, like uncle from an Asian uncle, mm-hmm. um, slacks, slippers, and then foot on the, on the chair. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, w- he, he, in this video, he was critiquing a BBC food. Um, oh, of how they made the rice. Yeah, of yeah, how they I made the rice. That, yeah. And it spoke to me so much because... Um, I've always had a certain way of making rice. Mm. Um, they didn't wash it or something. They like didn't wash it, it yeah. and they used too much water mm. and they cooked it in a pan. Uh, okay, I understand most people who's not Asian might not have a rice cooker. Mm. Um, but if you, but rice, if you don't cook in a certain way, will not have the right consistency for egg fried rice. Mm-hmm. And so Uncle Rogers went in mm. 
um, on, on it. Um, th- they became friends. Um, the, the chef that was on the video and, mm-hmm. and Nigel Ng, the comedian, became friends and they started exploring Indian and, and East Asian culture, which is really cool. Mm. But <clears throat> I feel like that spoke to me a lot because I'm quite particular on how people cook rice. And mm-hmm. when I see people making it wrong, I'll be like, ah. It's hard, isn't it? And oh. people never understood that. No, I was taught... Oh. Sorry, I'm about to get emotional. Yeah. I was told in university by someone that I cannot microwave my rice. Like, I can't reheat my rice in a microwave. Right. And yeah. I remember thinking, and they were like, if you do that, you're going to get really ill. Like, yeah. it can make you really sick. And yeah. I was like, all my life, yeah, full. In, the, in the 18 years yeah. I'd been existing on that earth at that yeah. time, I have been able to microwave rice yeah. the next day and yeah. not die. So I was yeah. just like, what? What what do you mean? Like, we, 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 like in my house, we reheat rice from three days ago. Literally yeah. all the time. I've, I I think I've even seen like a, a relative freeze rice before. Like I've seen yeah. all sorts of things happen with rice. It's a very sustainable um, type of dish. Yeah. So I was blown away. But it's it's very interesting how people have reimagined um, certain foods mm. that have originated from certain cultures in 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 different ways. Yeah. Like westernized the process. Westernized. Uh, westernized sorry I can't even speak today westernized the way of which it's eaten yeah. the process it's made in like all of these different things um, but yeah I, I only trust certain people to make me certain dishes sure. I think yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you have to have that understanding even yeah. things like washing the rice like that's all red flags for me if yeah. that's not something that you do yeah yeah no um Again, uh, maybe because African food isn't so much in the popular culture at the moment, mm. but I see like Chinese food, Indian food, and like Japanese, and that that's sort of that sort of what when it's starting to become popular, that sort mm. of food, where it's sort of um, Anglicanized or like mm. or it's like a fusion. Yeah, it's Westernized mm. in a way where it's actually not recognizable mm-hmm. um, for people who's from that part of the, those parts of the world. Mm. Um, and there's a she- there's an American chef. He's Korean American. Um, his name is Dave Chang, um, r- really cool guy, um, Ugly Delicious on Netflix, check it out. But he was mm-hmm. talking about how if you showed an American Chinese food from China mm-hmm. or from Hong Kong or, or from Malaysia, they would not recognize it. And they would be like, where's the real Chinese food? Mm-hmm. If you serve them real Chinese food, they wouldn't recognize it. Yeah. And that spoke to me in a way that no one's ever talked to me about food before because a lot of the people that talk to food aren't from that part of the world. Yeah. Um, and it's just for me it's interesting to see how food who I think especially in England where f- there isn't a lot of association with pride mm. with cultural pride because I don't even think England is a very um, it's not renowned for its culinary prowess because mm. um, like well, you, well, you know, fish and chips <laughs> well I love fish and chips but like if you let's say like, they asked you what are great Congolese dishes you can yeah, go on can and give, on yeah, about yeah, yeah. yeah. And if someone asks me what's grapefruit from Hong Kong, I can go on and on. But if someone asked an English person, grapefruit from England, dishes, they would be like a a fry up. I mean, I love a good fry up. Um, Fish and chips and pies. Yeah. All of them are great in its own sense, but it's not, it's not a lot of pride. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is very interesting. Mm. Um, With the limited experience I have with African food, um, I love it. And I hope one day it becomes, it gets the glorification that Asian food gets as well. Well, it's difficult because even like with what you're saying, I, I couldn't even imagine 
like someone from an English heritage mm. remixing a Congolese dish. Yeah. Like, I don't even know how I would even respond to that. I probably would hate it because I've even had experiences where um, growing up, mm. my mum's friends, if I'd go around their house and, you know, hang out with their kids and they would make um, one of like the dishes. Yeah. I wouldn't actually eat it because the the way my mum would make it and mm-hmm. because she had so much culinary experience to the extent where she was catering and other things, I knew what the best version of that particular dish would taste like. Mm-hmm. And there are definitely wrong ways to cook it with anything. There's mm. a right way and a wrong way to cook it. And there are variations. I would actually just refuse to eat certain of yeah. from certain people. Um, so, and that's within the Congolese community, yeah. <laughs> you know, where even though it may not taste necessarily the best, mm. it still follows certain w- rules or yeah. processes to make that dish. But to then have it reimagined by something completely different or someone from a completely yeah. different background, I couldn't even, I probably wouldn't even be able to eat it, to be honest. There was a, there's a basketballer. Um, he plays in the NBA. His name is Serge Ibaka. Yeah. Um, he's from uh, Congo. Yeah. And he, he plays in Toronto where Toronto is very multicultural. You can see if you guys have never been, um, Toronto has um, neighborhoods where it's completely culturalized, mm-hmm. where you can go to it, you know, the Chinese part of town where all you see are Chinese um, banners above shops and there's no mm-hmm. English words for it. The same for um, Indian and Korean um, culture. Mm-hmm. And there's, I watched this um, short documentary i can't remember who's with uh, complex or one of those mm. about pop culture and um um S- ibaka was talking about how how hard he had to find good rep- a good representation of congolese food mm. um and how he's like spreading that food to his teammates and to um just sharing you know what good congolese food looked like yeah and yeah I, it's, it's, food is just an amazing thing i think um, really a lot is. of people don't realize good food can heal the soul i think a hundred percent yeah good food um yeah um we, we, well that's actually more time than i thought we would spend talking about food but <laughs> I, know, I love food um, it's an important topic it's it's important and when it comes to i think it's a big identifier or a big part of any unique culture even mm. even in britain but i suppose when you you were talking about you've lived in these or you've you have a strong association with these three places mm-hmm. london uh switzerland and um, norwich now that you've been here a few years mm-hmm. what was it like as um as someone who's not white having lived in these predominantly white communities what was it like for a black person is there like a difference in how black people are a part of society or do you see any differences in how society treats you? Ooh, I'm going to try and break that down. Yeah, it's quite questions. loaded there. Um, so as the first one, what I think about the the lack of black communities in those environments. Mm. Um, so I would say, obviously, London is very, very culturally diverse. Growing up in London, I didn't really have a perception of race. I didn't really necessarily think about myself as a black person, even though obviously I identified as Congolese, identified as a Londoner. Um, I didn't really identify as black only because it wasn't something that 
was, I don't even know how to explain. Obviously I knew I was black, but in terms of the context of racism or discrimination, I didn't feel discriminated against mm. because I was black. So it didn't really feel like a thing of, I'm black, you're white, you're Asian, you're da-da-da. Like yeah. my class was full of people from all backgrounds. Yeah. I lived in an area where there were loads of black people, Turkish people, Somalians, like literally people from every corner of the earth, Albanian, Kurdish, like everywhere. Wow. Um, Jamaican, like I can't express how diverse my, my That's really cool, though. area was. So I never felt I'm black, I'm treated differently because I'm black or anything like that. I probably did have situations where I probably experienced racism, but because of how diverse my environment was, I didn't really see or feel in that way sure. because I had so many people that reflected me and I reflected them. Mm. Um, it was only until I moved to Peterborough around the age of 15 where I really, really understood that there is one, a massive problem with discrimination and racism, specifically outside of London. Mm -hmm. And I really, really, really struggled with that because I was suddenly now in an environment where everybody was white. Everybody had a limited understanding of black people or African culture or just anything. Mm. And it was very uncomfortable for me because I think people don't realize how important representation is, how important it is to have people that reflect you and your identity and how alone and uncomfortable it can be if you are in environments that are predominantly white. Like even little things like sitting on a bus and you being the only black person on that bus. Like, I think that's crazy. Mm. And I think it's uncomfortable because you are not only sitting on a bus with no one who looks like you, mm -hmm. you're sitting on a bus with people who have potential views about you, who you are, and those views aren't necessarily positive. Yep. So it was just difficult, I think, especially with a strong contrast of London and being from an environment that's just, it was so diverse and understanding and embracing and to go from that to something that was just completely different was very, very hard. Um, and then moving to Norwich, it was even weirder because it was like Norwich is definitely more diverse than Peterborough. It's definitely a little bit more forward. Um, but it was still in its own way, just, again, quite whitewashed. Um, I found it weird that because initially, if you'd spoken to me straight after I moved from London to Peterborough, the thing I would always say to people is that I hate Peterborough. I'm not going to live here right. for long. Like mm -hmm. as soon as I can leave, I'm going back to London. Mm -hmm. And then when it came to looking at universities, I don't know what happened. I don't know if I was drunk. Like, I don't know what it was. I wouldn't have been drunk because I was underage. But I remember I went to Norwich um, for like a, initially like an open day. And then I came back for my interview and the open day, like the sun was shining. Like, I don't know what happened. I just kind of fell in love with it. And then I remember going to like a, um, it was either Westminster or UAL. I went to an interview there as well. And I just felt so uncomfortable. Um, not because, not because there was anything wrong with the environment. It was just because I forgot about the pace of London. Right. Because I've also yeah. noticed with the, as well as the cultural differences, London, the competitiveness, the opportunity, the pace is completely and utterly different yeah. from every city outside of London, mm -hmm. like completely different, incomparable. And I was suddenly thrusted into this really, really 
intense environment. I was in this room with loads of people who were very ready to fight me for a position sure. at these unis. Yeah. And I just didn't feel comfortable. I felt like I'd been in Peterborough for a few years and I felt so slow mm-hmm. and so, uh, what's the word? Me, my personality, my vibrancy felt so suppressed from the different things that I had experienced while living there. Yeah. And honestly, I just didn't feel like I fit into it anymore. Right. Um, so Norwich was just, it kind of seemed like a middle ground because it was a little bit more culturally vibrant. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't intense in terms of career, competition, education, academic side of things, um, socially as well. But yeah, I do kind of, a big part of me wishes that maybe I, I just took the plunge and went back to London because yeah. honestly, I'm going back anyway. Like it, I just kind of delayed the process. Yeah. Um, but everything happens for a reason. I wouldn't even be here having this conversation if I never came. So, That's you true. Know. The radio opportunity that yeah, you had. Yeah. Exactly. So loads of different things happen for different reasons. So yeah. I can't, I can't knock them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what was your other question? I'm trying to remember. I suppose you kind of wrapped it up really well though, because we, we I was trying to get at, or trying to understand mm. how your experience in these different places um, compare as a non-white person. Mm. Um, what I was also quite interested in though, it's what is Switzerland like? Although, you know, you, you've never you know, lived there for a prolonged period of time. Mm. I guess through the lenses of your family, what is that like as a um, British African immigrant in a very culturally unique country Mm. in Europe? I think from their perspective and any time I've spoken to um, my my younger sister has a completely different perspective to my younger brother Mm. um, naturally. Yeah. Um, So I'll try and cover a bit of everything but they live on the French side so they live in like this like town slash village called Neuchâtel and it's like a really wonderful relatively quaint but big enough that you can see a variety of different yeah. people. There's a really massive like Congolese um, community there in that particular area. So there are shops that are specific Congolese barbers that are Congolese. Like it, it's not. I would say it's definitely there are more, <laughs> arguably maybe more Congolese people there than in Peterborough. I want to say. Um, so it's definitely nicer in terms of culture. Um, but Switzerland in itself is a very, very beautiful environment. There's a lot of positives about it around health, around yeah, general bet. living standard. It's, I don't even know how to explain, like, one, homelessness. Barely saw it. I don't right. know where, I don't know if there's a case that there's a system that I don't know about, but I don't think I've seen one homeless person in Switzerland in the many times that I've gone back there. Sure. So I think the way that, things are managed maybe in terms of the community and the environment is much more cohesive. Mm. Um, my little brother loves it. Yeah. He is fluent in French and English. Wow. Um, he's starting to learn a bit of German now. And, you know, You'd he learned, see that. yeah, it's yeah. phenomenal. Like he's only 10 years old yeah. and he, knows, <laughs> he, he probably understands more languages than me at this point. Um, my little sister she doesn't think there's much to do there. Right. I think because of the town where she's in, it's very, it's relatively old town. So, you know, people from school, you know, your friends, you can see that. But in the same way that Norwich is a university type city, it's Mm -hmm. quite a young city because it has two universities and it's small. Um, In that same sort of tone, 
the town they live in doesn't have a lot of like youth orientated or creative things i think they have very traditional perspectives yeah so even with the jobs there because i had a spell where i was like i'm just gonna move to switzerland i don't want to be here anymore i'm tired i just want to live with my mom and eat yeah um I had a spell for that and I was even looking for jobs in relation to stuff that I, I like doing yeah. and there is none. Right. If you are a creative person or you are someone who is that way inclined, living mm. in the French side of Switzerland, it's just not for you. Right. Um, their systems are just very, very different. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but culture-wise, I would say they get a tick from me. I went around with my, I go around with my mom a lot sometimes mm-hmm. and we went shopping for some food and yeah, I just felt like I was in a mini part of Congo in some of the areas that we went to, which was nice. That's cool. And everyone's so friendly there. So, so sweet. Yeah. Um, I had tonsillitis in uh, January because I get it chronically sometimes. Mm-hmm. And we had to pick up a prescription for me. So I had to do like um, a prescription with um, Babylon. So I had to do a prescription right. over the phone yeah. <laughs> and then enter a pharmacy yeah. in Switzerland went to the pharmacy they really struggled to understand me because obviously they don't speak english right um and it's like a really small amount of english i had to get the prescription like sent to them yeah and they were just so friendly and lovely and i was just like there have been i've been in so many situations where i've traveled to another country and i've needed to communicate something that i maybe not is maybe not easy for me to communicate or for someone else to understand me and they've kind of been a bit rude, but Switzerland seems like a really, really lovely place. Everyone's yeah. so friendly. Um, so I would even say like, arguably over places that I've seen in, in England, like Peterborough, I would much prefer the, even though it's not as culturally diverse as London, Right. I would much prefer living in somewhere like Neuchâtel than I would in Peterborough, yeah. maybe possibly even i'm joking hey, look, <laughs> it's not for everyone norwich sounds idyllic though sounds oh, it's just sounds beautiful. gorgeous yeah you can step outside and, and see a lake and just sit there and just yeah reflect listen yeah. to music eat whatever yeah that's cool yeah. I, I have a little anecdote not that it, not that it relates to much of what you said but about being sort of a standout mm. in, a, in a place uh, um i went to north west Wales, or maybe it was southwest, but it's on the far side of Wales. You have to um, go around Snowdon National Park, and I was in one of these small towns. Beautiful. Mm. Um, it was on a on a hill range, so the scenery was gorgeous. Mm. Um, but it was predominantly white. Um, nothing rude happened. Nothing bad happened. It was. I just remember one day walking in. This is um, between, I think this was New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, mm-hmm. um, and I walked in the shop and I. You know, the British thing would be to greet them, good morning. And the lady was standing around the corner, a corner. The shopkeeper was standing behind um, the d- the door. It was a corner that you, and she was back facing the front door, so she wouldn't have seen me when we walked in. I walked in, I said good morning. She said good morning. She looked around and saw me, and then she turned around and took a double take mm. because she, I think it was just out of shock that oh, uh, there's a non, there's an Asian person here, that, and yeah. they've never seen um, one before, and it was. It was just funny. Um, she was very nice. She wasn't yeah. rude or anything, but it was just a funny anecdote I have about something like that. Uh, there are definitely some places where that, that happens. But yeah, funnily enough, Switzerland's not one of those places. I, I assumed that it would be quite white, but it really isn't. Like there is, but I don't know if that's just because we're in the French side. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's quite a big, big country. So it's hard to know 
and a lot of like African people will be more French speaking. So yeah. it's natural that they would reside in, in an area the that French is French speaking yeah. as well, especially Congolese people. Mm. Um, so I don't know if that's got anything to do with it. I don't know if it's a case of my mum just happens to know every Congolese person probably <laughs> in, in Switzerland as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I've, ne- I've never experienced that in Switzerland. Mm. Even even in that quaint town of Neuchatel, like I've never gone into a shop and felt like they were surprised to see me because I'm black like, yeah. ever. Um, but I do definitely think there are places that I, I would assume that would be the case. Right. And maybe like, I'm a bit like, oh, would I even want to go there? Yeah. I don't really know if I would want to go there. Um, maybe because it, I feel like it'd probably be the same experience, maybe even more dramatic. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's a experience that I think not a lot of people would have to go through when they think about traveling. Mm. Yeah. Um, we're going to rewind a little bit and go back to the BLM rally slash protest that we had in Norwich. Mm-hmm. And that all came out of the of what happened to George Floyd in um, Minneapolis a few months back. Mm. Um, obviously, it's a very sensitive topic. And um, for pe- for some people, it might not relate to them as much as it might to you Mm. how when that happened um if you don't mind um what what did it mean to you when we all saw that i mean everyone saw that on social media Mm. um in my head i i I thought oh here we go again Uh, more not so much that it's going to be an outpour of outrage i think that's justified um but more so oh gosh it happened again in america Mm-hmm. Um, like why does it keep happening that's what went through my mind when I saw it when I was scrolling through social media that morning mm. what what was it like for you um, I think it was a range of different things first I was really furious that I was seeing black death so explicitly and it was frustrating that even in death there is just this lack of of sensitivity around like censorship and things like that. Right. Like I was just seeing it widely distributed yep. from multiple different people, multiple different angles, which was really intense. Um, Cause for any black person, you know, when you see another black person, there is a sense of reflection. There is a, a sense of um, relatability. I don't know if that's a word, but you relate to other people that look like you and you feel familiar when you see people that look like you. And I think that to see someone that literally could be my uncle, could be my dad, literally looks like many, many people that are part of my family, part of my, my community. Yeah. Um, to see them killed in such a, a disgusting way was really, really upsetting. I think it was triggering because of the way that I saw it. I really, didn't anticipate what I was going to be seeing because there mm-hmm. was almost no, never any real description. It was kind of like, this has happened in America. This has happened to this man. And I tried to watch it. And then I kind of feel like I was stuck watching it out of like shock. Um, but at the same time, I wasn't really surprised. I think it was, it was crazy because I'd seen similar things to what happened to George Floyd over the span of my life. I've seen it in different ways. Yeah. Um, so part of me saw it and was just heartbroken. I was heartbroken because 
it'd been a long time since I'd not a long time, but it'd been a while since I'd seen it that explicitly. Right. So it'd been something that I'd been reading about more so than mm. seeing. And to see it that that graphically was just really, really upsetting. Um I began grieving. I began grieving for him. I began mm. grieving for his family. And I was so I almost felt exhausted. Um I felt exhausted because I'd already, I don't know if the Ahmad came before that or after. I think it, I think his death came before. So we'd only, we'd, we'd recently seen another black man who'd been killed in a way that was, again, unjustified. Yeah, it was before, and I think. gruesome, yeah. yeah. So I'd just come off the back of grieving for that and feeling at a loss. I think the difficulty with that um, was that it was, again, just as explicit, but it wasn't by someone or a system that was supposed to right. protect, um, serve and protect even. Yeah. So I know there were talks of the one of the perpetrators being an ex-policeman or something like that, but it wasn't, that was, that was almost like a slightly different scenario. Yeah, yeah. But to then see someone who has so much unrequited power murdering someone who looks like me for reasons that were just, again, incredibly unjustified. Mm. It was very, very upsetting. And I can't even, I can't even put into words how I felt. I think in, ter- in terms of like the world and the way everyone else responded to it, there was so much shock and surprise and I was almost frustrated by that because I was like, why are you surprised? Why are you shocked? Like, this yeah. is not new. It's not something that just started today or, mm-hmm. with, or, or with George Floyd. Sadly, like, it's not something that is a surprise to a lot of black people. So I was just so confused with the the surprise, I yeah. think. Um, and how that surprise ignited this, this sense of action. Mm-hmm. And I felt... I felt a little bit disgusted that it took seeing a man like be murdered over the span of nine, 10 minutes or so. It took seeing that so graphically on a widespread platform to make people want to do something. It's like, why should you have to see death for you to want to take action around right. the quality of someone's life? Yeah. Like, why does it need to be that extreme? Yeah. Like, do you not have that base level of humanity for black people already? Um, and if you did, you would know that this is something that's already going on. And if you knew that, you would know what you can do to help support the, again, the brutality around black lives. Um, so there was a bit frustrate. It was frustrating um, the spark of activism that I feel like everyone should have a baseline of activism around that anyway, because it's, again, police brutality is not anything new around black the black community. Yep. Um, but yeah, so there was multiple different feelings trauma upset depression frustration anger so there's loads of I, I think i had loads of different emotions around his death and his murder yeah coming out of that as you said it's not anything new it's not anything that's never happened before but why do you think this triggered the reaction or response that we've seen because 
I've never seen anything like that in, in the reaction of it. I've never seen it mm-hmm. happen in Norwich. Mm-hmm. I've never seen, maybe because I haven't paid attention, but I haven't mm. seen that big of a reaction in London. Mm. Um, and I was talking to a friend in Australia and it was happening in Australia. Mm-hmm. All the, the protests and rallies and um, like movements of solidarity and the subsequent movements of um, people learning or relearning history, that sort of stuff. That's, at least in my memory, I've never seen that large scale of response Mm. before. Why was it this time? Why do you think that's caused that to happen? I honestly think it's just because of the pandemic. Mm. Um, And as sad and honest as that is, I think a lot of people were bored. A lot of people were restricted in the things that they used to distract them and what they used to to curate their their sense of ignorance around these matters. And as a result of having that lack of distraction, they were then faced with this really in your face information around black people and death and things like that. And it gave them something to do whilst also, you know, being socially correct. I think it was a combination of performance more time, less distractions. Obviously, there'll be some people that... I think it's hard for me because I just I just can't... I can't say, like, there'll be some people that didn't know because if you didn't know, like, I don't know how you could not know. Right. And I don't just say that because I'm black. And I know there will be certain things that I would definitely be more exposed to in terms of information because I am black. It concerns me specifically so as a result it's my responsibility to be aware for my own safety and my own understanding and from my own experiences as well I've been forced into experiences where I've had to realize that police do not treat me the same they will not treat my family the same they will not treat friends of mine that are from the same background as me the same so I think with all of those things in mind maybe I've been a bit more conscious of it but I just don't think in your 18 years of life your 20 years of life your 30 years of life you would not know about the treatment that black people experience. And if you didn't, then that says a lot about you more than the movement itself. Yeah. So I think it was very much just like, how did you not know? Why did it take you and your whole life standing still by force Mm -hmm. for you to start looking and caring and listening about something that has been shouted about, you know, since I think, when did it start? I want to say 20... 13 i want to say either 2011 or 2013 either or i think 2013 i think um the movement started with um trayvon's murder so it's been years and even with that 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 i would say brought the awareness at uh, almost like a peak and people Mm -hmm. still weren't listening or doing what they can to be a part of that that base level of activism so we're talking a good seven years from what happened recently yeah seven years ago there were multiple multiple protests and there was a lot of recognition there was a lot of information and there was a lot of things happening within the black lives matter movement and it was ignited in that moment and yet it took you being in a situation where you cannot move you cannot leave you cannot do for you to start listening to something that is incredibly horrible. It's horrid. Yeah. 
it took you seeing that and listening to that for you to actually be like, do you know what? Maybe I should actually partake in this in this fight for humanity. Like, I don't know. It's, yeah. I find that interesting. Yeah. I can't recall exactly what you asked me, but... Well, I think you answered it again. <laughs> um, no, it's... Uh, at the end of the day, I don't feel like... I feel like, you know, we're exploring this understanding of why now, why people are suddenly paying attention to it. Mm. And and it raises a really good question. Why? Why is it now that people are just realizing it? And I think part of me also feels like the... the I hate to use this word, the system, but the, mm. the circumstance that we live in kind of suppresses most people's desire to care for anything about... The care for anything other than themselves. Mm. Because most people live paycheck to paycheck. Mm. So they are trying to make that system work for themselves. And any joy they can find, they try to use that for themselves. Mm -hmm. So when I think a lot of societal behavior I see is that people try to distance themselves from anything else that require any more capacity within their, their brains or their physical capacity to care for something that doesn't remotely affect them mm. and even in this in this whole in the when i see the british side of things um a lot of the argument against why we should be a part of it is oh it's happening in america it doesn't happen here which is wild which is that's which is wild. crazy that's because yeah. because that's not true yeah you and i here know that it's not true i've seen it happen with my own eyes mm-hmm. here in britain i've experienced it with my own, yeah, my own you've self. experienced <laughs> it and and you know you've repeatedly talked talked about it and mm-hmm. and we still find you know society still finds capacity to not immerse themselves in that experience mm. rather than try any possibility to distance themselves from it um yeah i think as 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 a society we are very desensitized and it is that case of a lot of people need it to happen to them for them to do something about it yeah and it's it's very frustrating because especially in a scenario like this where the perpetrator is not you mm. how can you you can't stop it. I think that's the problem with with racism and police brutality and the dehumanizing elements around that and the criminalization that comes with that is that it's not actually within the control of the black person or the black community. Like it's got nothing to do with us. Yeah. All we're doing is being black. And it's like, we can't not be black and we mm. can't change the color of our skin. and We can't change the the derogatory perspective that people have or the discriminatory perspective that people have of black people. And it's like, how do you fight a fight or stop a fight even that you aren't starting? Yeah. You know, if you were telling someone, sorry, I have really bad analogies, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, go for it. Analogist, that's probably also not a word. Um, (laughs) But if you were standing there and someone punched you and you 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 know you blocked it but then they keep punching you but you're not a fighter you don't really want to punch them back yeah if they want to keep punching you and you're also not a fighter and you have no way of punching them back then they're going to keep punching you yeah. how do you then stop them and you cut off their hand like yeah. the only way you can stop them is if they stop themselves yeah and or if someone else intercepts who can punch them yeah. punches them do you know yeah. what i mean so it's like i feel 
black people are super, super unprotected because we're being killed for being black, which is something we, it, that is out of our control. Yeah. And it's not anything wrong with being black. So it's like, we're being killed for no reason. And in addition to being killed for no reason, we don't have a way to stop the people that are killing us. Yeah. The only people that can stop that are the people that are killing us. Yeah. Do you know? So it's like white people as a as a community yeah. have the power to stop all forms of police brutality. Yeah. They listen to themselves more than they listen to black people. Yeah. So it's like, how do we control that narrative? All we can do is explain and express our experiences, our trauma, our are everything we can express that but we've been doing that for years and look like nothing is changing in 2020 we're seeing a man being killed mm. for a count of uh, you know a, a, apparently like a note that's fake that was fake yeah. like that's crazy could yeah. you imagine being killed for something like that like yeah. well i can't yeah. it's not it's not it's not a ma- it's, it doesn't make sense you know yeah. he was killed because he was black and it's crazy that over such a a, a small insignificant scenario someone can actually lose their life lose yeah. their right to exist and how do black people respond to people that are willing to kill them yeah. for situations like that we can't yeah in reality so i think this is where this whole like concept of allyship has come into play because i think people are starting to realize that no one really listens to black people and no one does something because a black person tells them to do it because that's how low we are in terms of the hierarchy of society in terms of the hierarchy of our communities that we we occupy we're so low because of the forms of discrimination and racism that we we've experienced over such a long period of time that we couldn't even say you're killing us for no reason and someone do something about it it needed to be a case of white people had nothing to do other than to be reflected with our death Mm -hmm. for them to realize you know we need to start saying something about the stuff other white people are doing for no reason which is it's wild to me, but it's it just goes to show the type of world that we're living in. It's gotten to a stage where we have to take these measures. You know, I have to just hope that in any scenario that I'm in, I happen to be with a white person who can react to it. Yeah, I'm not allowed to react to the, to things that happen to me. I'm not allowed to react in the way that uh, any person would yeah. because I have repercussions based off of my reaction that yeah. could be life or death. So it's it's a very difficult predicament to be in. I think the more people realize, the more white people realize specifically that in reality, they have the most power over the situations and experiences that everyone else experiences, the more they realize that and the more they try and use that power for the better of everyone else yeah. and the equality and humanity of it, of everyone else's experiences the quicker we can get into a stage where we're not dying over stupid things. I think one thing we need, I need to say in this mm. matter is I think I can already hear the people, the naysayers um, mm. talking about what I'm sure it goes through your head all the time as well. But what Ali was trying to say is that when she says she can't react, it's not that she can't react. It's that if she reacts, the response given to her would be very different to say, if I responded in a similar situation, mm. if um, a white person responded in the same, so, so, even if we reacted the same way, responded the same way, the treatment we will be given mm. will be very different. And so I think people don't, 
when, when, when people listen to things like that and say, oh, but you, you, know, you can do what you want to do. Uh, da, 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 da. You can report them. You can, you can take down their badge number. You could do da, da, da. It's like, no. At the end of the day, if I was in that situation and someone who was white was in that situation, the, again, the experience is always going to be different. White people aren't treated the same. There is a whole systematic... What is it? There's a whole systematic organization around the way black people are treated by police. There is a whole culture around how police are, are supposed to treat black people and how they're supposed to treat white people. You know, there is a routine. And, you know, I obviously I'm not in the police, but just based off of the information that I've had over a long period of time, the research that I've done over a long period of time, over different situations, the police respond differently to black people in than the way that they respond to white people. We don't have the luxury of having certain responses and our responses create consequences for us that are very, again, very different. So I think it's just, it's a, it's a, a hard world to live in as a black person, as we already know from just the years and years of racism that black people have experienced and still experience in everywhere, England, US, worldwide. It's gotten to the stage now where it's so embedded in the in the society that we live in, in all of the institutions, whether it's education, whether it's work, whether it's, again, governing, companies or industries like the police the government everything it's so embedded in all of these environments that people almost don't even realize it because we're so conditioned to experiencing it from these different institutions and i think the treatment of things like how people treat you at work because you're black how people how the police treat you because you're black people overlook it and they don't actually think okay I'm white. I'm probably experiencing this completely different. No, no one, no, I don't feel like a lot of people thought that until literally seeing how something so small, because that's the thing, people love trying to find ways to justify what the police do and the response that the police have. Yeah. Oh, he was resisting. Oh, he was doing this. Oh, he, you know, he committed a crime, da, da, da. And it's like, what you have to really look at is how a white person can commit a crime and what response the police will have to them versus if a black person was to commit a cr- the same crime, mm. what response they would have to them. And we have so many examples of that. Yep. There are so many different white criminals that have killed people that have had different responses down to how the arrest was taken. You know, the fact that they were even able to be arrested yep. and they are still alive to have some sort of sentencing or some type of repercussion for their crime. Mm-hmm. That alone is a big comparison yep. that you can survive your arrest. Um, down to the sentencing based off of color colorism as well depending on how dark or light you are yeah. not, not even just white and black but within the spectrum of being black yeah. what, what shade of black are you um but yeah there are just multiple different nuances in that whole policing situation like there are loads of different layers to it and in every layer that you assess there is a massive discrepancy between how black people are treated and how white people are treated. Mm. Um, so I think it's it's very interesting because in that situation, we really got to see how even for something so minor that you 100% know did not justify you that person being killed or George Floyd being killed, 
it took seeing something like that where there really is no wrong. Like, there, yeah. sorry, there really is no right. You can look at that and be like, no, there was no way to justify that death. Yeah. It took a situation like that, seeing that, because again, that would not be the only instance where a black person hasn't done anything to justify death. Because death is final. Like, do you know how, for me, it's like, do you know how much a person has to do to be able to be killed. Like the only time I could ever think of death being justifiable is in self-defense. If you are in a situation where someone is literally going to kill you and the only way of which you can stop them from doing that is by defending yourself and that defense ends up in some type of death. I can I can even small, small, small amount begin to understand. Yeah. But like for someone who is completely and utterly harmless for you to to intentionally kill them. And it is intentional because again, there was a lot of communication leading up to his death. Mm. He was very expressive with the things that he was experiencing. And all of that was ignored intentionally. Like for you to intentionally kill someone over something, that that is another level of hatred. And for there to be no reason as well, That for you to actually kill someone because you hate them because they're black. Do you know how that is just crazy to me? Like I can't, I can't understand that level of hatred. It's it's, yeah. it's sickening. How can you hate someone for something they can't control? Like that is just that is, it blow it blows my mind. It really does. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. I that. I think even even on you know what you talked about how different people who look different are being treated dif- differently. You just need to look at you know I don't want to go too much into politics, but mm. you look at how the last two the current and the last presidents of the United States are treated by the media Mm. and the standard they're being held accountable to is, is massively different. Mm. You, you know, one, you know, Obama having president Obama having a birthday party, the media went in on him Mm. on that. And then this current president, the current incumbent president could be talking about, you know, um, groping women could be talking about, um, could be not condemning, um, white supremacists mm-hmm. and the media just sort of like, eh. Oh, that's Trump. Yeah, and that's that's you know that's that it's in itself is evidence that you just you need to see. You mentioned a word earlier just now um, that I think a lot of people wouldn't have heard of before this year, mm. um, and that word is ally, mm-hmm. for you know being allyship. an ally, yeah. allyship. I think people are slowly seeing that word more but mm. to you what does what is a good ally what what are some things that a good ally need to be able to exhibit like to show that mm. they are doing in order for you to consider them a good ally i think a good ally for me takes accountability i think the problem with this whole concept of allyship is that people are using their perception of allyship to exclude them from the role that they play in in this whole concept of systematic racism to exclude them from their privilege and i think that allyship doesn't exclude you from the privilege that you have Mm. for being white it Mm -hmm. doesn't it doesn't exclude you from the benefits you gain Mm -hmm. from the lack of um discrimination you face it's not some sort of exclusion from any of that. And I think a lot of people go in with this, you know, well, I'm an ally, I'm here to support you. I'm not personally racist. You know, I condemn the people that are, but it's like, you're still white. You still benefit from a lot of things. I don't want you to detach yourself from that because you understand that the white community who acknowledges their privilege and things like that, 
are, are in these roles of which they are killing people or whatever and being treated differently and, and reaping that the benefits of that treatment. I need you to use the role that you have and the power that you have to help support this fight for humanity that black people are in. You know, it's all about support, but it's also about accountability for me and understanding that in the positions of power and privilege that you have, how can you then use that power, that voice, that position to help better the experience of the black people around you and the black community around you? You know, it's about education. It's about understanding what position you play in our system, how you can use that position for the betterment, again, of minorities around you. And also accepting that there is a lot of hurt and anger around it I think again there's no concept of exemption at the end of the day we are in this in this in this battle for humanity and equality together but we're not equal yeah I don't want my ally to ever think that because they are my friend or they are there to support me or they are educating themselves around race and discrimination and all of the things that come along with it I don't want them to ever think that we are equal because we're not yeah and just because you value my voice and you value my opinion and you give me the platform to express those things to you in an equal manner, that does not mean that we are equal. We are not equal. We do not have the same lives. We do not have the same privileges. Mm -hmm. We do not have the same experience and we never will until things change, which I don't know if they will in my lifetime, if I'm very honest. Um, So the very least you can do is understand that we are not equal. And as a result, you will have to sacrifice certain things to create this illusion of equality while I'm existing. Yeah. And if you are unable to do that, then I don't deem you as an ally. If you can't recognize the things that you have yeah. and how to use those things to better the situation, to, to feed into this illusion of equality, because we are so far from equality. Yeah. We are very, very far from it. So the illusion is the only concept we have, you know, things like positive yeah. discrimination in a workplace or, all the different initiatives that are currently taking place in different environments. That's all an illusion, you know, is to, is to allow this concept of let's give them something so that they can survive in this space. Yeah. It's all about survival at the end of the day and tolerance. Yeah. We can tolerate the environments that we occupy because they are bringing in initiatives to make us feel like we have this illusion of equality. Yeah. And if you, at the very least, can't continue to continue this activism, one, yeah. to to be a part of that very slow change yeah. that we're in, if you can't be a part of that very slow movement and also understand that you need to contribute to this illusion by sacrificing the personal benefits that you gain just for being white, yeah. then you shouldn't consider yourself as an ally. So to summarise, literally, being educating yourself Mm -hmm. being active with your education in terms of distributing it speaking out when people experience racism because again with your position of power and privilege you are more protected when you speak you have less consequences when you speak speaking out accountability understanding your position of power and privilege and yeah i would say those things are what i would say constitutes an ally yeah i think people often misunderstand equality and Mm -hmm. what it actually means. Mm -hmm. Equality means giving everyone the same amount of stuff. Mm -hmm. But when you already start off with more than what other people have, Mm -hmm. 
then equality is still going to push you a hit further than people who are not as privileged as you are. Mm. And I think that's where people, for me and you, feel free to disagree with me, but I feel a lot of people don't understand is, yeah, we can have equality, mm. but equality doesn't redistribute. It doesn't change the end result because I might be better off from where we started, but so will have you. Mm. And I think also people need to understand that what we're asking of, as well, being asked of me and asked of other people who could be allies is that it doesn't take away the, the tough stuff that you've had to go through in life. Mm-hmm. All it means is those things are not caused by the color of your skin. Exactly. And I think, yeah, people need to realize that I'm, for me, right, again, my, my level of understanding of racism and what I've gone through is very different and mm. probably way less severe. Well, definitely way less severe than a black person would have. But but people need to, I think people need to see that, yeah, what I've, they can, it's it's hard for people to understand what you have experienced in life. Mm. But the willingness to to accept that that's happening and willingness to, let's see what I can do to eventually get us to a place where people that look like you don't have to go through that using what I have. So let's say mm-hmm. I'm in my, like, you know, I don't know how other Chinese people feel about this, but we Chinese people as a whole, um, okay, I don't want to generalize, but mm-hmm. there's a, well, even in Hong Kong, there's a huge level of racism that's going through. So I reach an audience that probably you don't, get to reach mm. so using my voice to speak even if i'm just a working class nobody the audiences that i get to reach out to when i speak on things like this mm. is already reaching out to people that just yourself probably can't relate to or can't reach out to mm. and again maybe this this is just a surface level of things that we could be doing but that in itself is a privilege that you probably don't have mm. that i can use to maximize that voice, I suppose, to mm-hmm. maximize that educate, first self-education and mm-hmm. then educating others. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what people don't get is that, oh, I'm suffering too. I'm working hard just to make my own ends meet. Mm-hmm. What do you mean that I could use my privilege? I don't understand this. Well, actually, that's where my privilege comes in. Mm-hmm. I probably didn't have to go through a lot of hardship that you, you, know, you have to mm-hmm. just because of how I look. Um, and I reach an, an audience that you probably don't mm. and I need to use that platform that I have no matter what re- you recognize you have a platform or not mm. to try to equalize this playing field to level this playing field to make sure that I can use what I have to give you a boost up mm. I feel like that's for me, that's a the minimum that I can do and I should be doing. Yeah, I think that's the thing I always say to people, especially like during lockdown, people were asking me, you know, what are different things I can do? Like, how can I begin this this concept of activism and support? And I, you know, I I very simply said in most situations that you have to begin from the corner of where you stand. Like you have Mm. to begin from your own personal environment. 
it's all very good and well you posting things or signing petitions but how are you impacting your environment your community your family you know there are going to be so many people that you know that will be racist and that will be covertly racist and you have to really really start from there because they are more likely to listen to you and they're more likely to listen to people that they know or people that look like them yeah because again it's it's accountability and it begins when you are able to relate to something or someone it's easier to take responsibility and accountability for something when someone tells you hey by the way i'm like you and i think this as well yeah for some reason i don't know why it needs to be that way but for some reason it works better yeah you know i remember i gave my friend the example of how um if they were doing something bad or like let's say they were young and they wanted to stay out past a certain point and a random woman came up to them and said hey you need to go home like you can't be out the likelihood of them listening to that woman versus their mom telling them you need to go home yeah you know it's it's that again that relatability and for some reason even though it's our experience and it's an experience that's very negative that we're expressing, it for some reason takes people that people can relate to for some people to understand. So that's why I just say to all of my friends who are white and anyone I know who are white, that you need to start from the people you know, Mm. because you have so much, not necessarily authority, that's probably the wrong word, but you have so much more of a, position of yeah let's go with authority you have so much more of a, a position of authority and your voice is so much more important to them than my voice would be because they don't care about me and yeah. my opinion we already know most people don't care about black people if we, if people cared about black people in general we would not be in this position so the fact that the black community doesn't have that same sense of care and consideration people don't have that same sense of care and consideration for the black community as they would people that maybe reflect them a bit more. You have to hear it from someone that cares about you sometimes and it's been proven to work. Mm. So yeah, I just say to people like start off with yourself, obviously, because again, your education, your understanding is something that needs to be explored and solidified in these type of matters before you start speaking to anyone about anything you wouldn't be a maths teacher without learning maths do you know what i mean Mm, so yeah if we think of racism as an exam and activism as revision you need to do your revision to be able to do the exam of, of combating racism so start with that personal education once that personal education is in a position where you feel like you have things and resources that you want to distribute that have supported you in your understanding and your learning, start doing that. Start targeting people specifically that you know are in that whole realm of ignorance is bliss and figure out a way of which you can infiltrate their their understanding and concept of racism. A lot of people still think racism doesn't exist. Yeah. And in addition to it not existing, it doesn't occur in their personal environments. Yeah. So again, use someone who knows them, who can relate to them and almost can relate to their understanding of racism because you won't have necessarily been in that position of, I know how to be an activist. I I understand that racism exists. You've learned to be in that position. 
help them learn. What did you do to understand racism better? How did you start becoming more aware of it? What made you care? If it was that video, if it was news articles, if it was hearing podcasts or people's personal experiences, whatever it was, keep sharing that because you never know that same resource will trigger the same need and desire to understand and learn and educate and support that you had in someone else. Yeah. And some people don't even have those mediums of resources as well. So it's like your conversation will help spark that. Mm. And that is, again, like you said, the bare minimum people can do. Yeah. I think what people also don't, I think as allies, we need to also realize the world that we live in, the way it's constructed with social media and with, you know, unwillingness to educate ourselves is that we, a lot of people live in an echo chamber, including ourselves. We, with the people we follow on on social media, um, we tend to, and the way social media works, the algorithm works, it tends to feed you things that you would probably like. So we don't get a lot of alternative opinions. So one of the things that I think allies could do um, is to break that echo chamber is to be an alternative voice in someone's echo chamber. So one of the things that I've I've um, started to notice is a lot of my friends from Hong Kong, with everything that's going in there, um, President Trump seems to be the only one that's speaking out against China, mm-hmm. despite his pro- his proven record of cozying up to China. Mm. They seems to celebrate him. So in that echo chamber, it's hard to not see outside of Trump is good. So what I've tried to do is provide an alternative opinion. Whether or not they accept it or not, that's out of my control. Mm. But if I don't provide that voice, all they're going to hear is the same voice. Mm. And you're contributing to it. If you don't provide that alternative voice, that also just happens to be the correct voice as well or the more or the more the more accurate voice then you are contributing to it and i think that's another thing that i always say with people who say that they're not racist is mm. if you are not actively being anti-racist then that silence is you being complicit in no situation has anyone ever robbed something with someone else there or robbed something with another person present, but not necessarily actively doing the robbing, and that person got away with it. They are considered as an accomplice because that's the way that things work. If you see something that's happening Mm. and you don't intercept, but you are also around, you don't do the latter, you don't oppose what's happening, you are a part of what's happening. And I think that's where people get really confused. I don't personally do things that are racist. I don't personally say things that are racist. I'm not discriminatory. I like everyone. I've got no problem with anyone who's black. The fact that you don't have a problem with the people who do have a problem with people who are black means that you are contributing to that concept of racism. You need to actively disband and actively fight against racism for it to be a case of you're not racist. Yeah. And I think that's a, a concept that really confuses a lot of people. Um, and they feel like if they're not contributing, then they are being helpful. Mm. But in reality, 
it would be better to contribute or not to, to contribute. Yeah. Oh, sorry. It'd be better to contribute <laughs> in general. Yeah. No contribution is not on the cards. Yeah. You're either yeah. racist or you're anti-racist. Yeah. There's no such thing as not being racist, yeah. in my opinion. Um, but yeah, that's just the way I see it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a lot of... Yeah, that, that it's a really good reminder that actually there's still a lot of work to be done. Mm. But it's work worth doing. Um, and, you know, if we're not leaving the world a better place than we found it, then what's the point? Mm. Um, yeah. Because that's the thing I always say as well. It's like, let's say that you you had racist people, you had the people that they were being racist against, and then you had the the people who are, they don't do anything about mm. it. If it was a case of nobody did anything about it and the only people who could do something about it were the people that were being racist and obviously they didn't want to do anything about it because they're happy to be racist, we would be at a stalemate. Yeah. Do you see why it's important to have anti-racism? Because mm-hmm. without that form of action, we wouldn't get out of racism. So for you to not be anti-racist, you are contributing to that concept of racism because you're not doing anything to progressively move us out of that concept of racism. Yeah. So I think it's it's so important to show that level of activism when it comes to racism because if you're not doing anything, you are complicit. You are contributing to the lack of progression yeah. towards us coming out of this, this um, experience of racism. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's definitely all interesting to see how people respond and how people wear their their allyship. Um, but I think allyship is 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 weird in its own way that we need to coin a term to invite yeah. people yeah. and make people understand yeah. how to be anti-racist. Yeah. Just be human. Yeah. Then you would you would naturally be anti-racist if you were if you had some concept of humanity. Yeah. But no, you have to be an ally. You have to assume that title. Yeah. And that role of allyship for you to yeah. then do it. You need to be in a role. You can't just naturally do it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's very good. Um, Ali, if people want to find out more about what you're currently doing where would people find out more I know you're doing a radio show at the moment well you're part of a radio show at the moment mm-hmm. talking about Black History Month um, if people want to find out more about the work that you've been doing where would they go to find it the best place probably would be my Instagram it's a hard one because my Instagram is a platform for everything that I do and everything yeah. I feel um, so it's a very expressive platform and I think a lot of people follow me for specific things and then see a bit of everything. Um, so I would say there are two Instagrams that I'm sort of split across, um, but I'm less active on the other one because I'm still reworking things. Sure. But the main Instagram is A-R-L-B-K-T. So it's R-L-B-K-T, which is essentially just letters from my first name and my last name. Yeah. <laughs> really unmanaged unimaginative with that um but yeah so just a r l b k t is my instagram and if 
anyone has any questions or any conversations they want to continue on there, I'm more than happy to talk about that stuff. I can speak about this type of stuff for hours, to yeah. be honest. Um, but yeah, that's probably where I'm most active and di- distribute the different things that I'm doing or planning yeah. to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, with what we've talked about, no matter how much you think you're doing, there's more that we can always do. Mm. And let's, you know, let's actively find capacity to do those things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Cool. I think that's a good place for us to end. We've talked a lot today. And yeah. obviously there's still probably more to talk about, but I think for one episode, that's quite a bit for everyone to chew on. Mm. Thank you so much for coming along, Ali. No worries. Cool. I'm more than happy to have a chat with you, Tim. Yeah. Um, well, hopefully, by the time we have we can have another episode with you on, um, we can still have you on. Yeah. Depending sweet. on where you are. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler. I'm joking. <laughs> cool. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Art of Something. We hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I've enjoyed recording it. Make sure you follow our Instagram page at theartof underscore something and have clicked subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And why not leave a comment while you're at it? Hey, we'll see you in the next one. Thank you.